The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, Donatello, the Renaissance in Florence, the rights of rivers at the Biennale of Sydney, and Eduardo Navarro's seed installation in London. As the Palazzo Strozzi and the Museo Nazionale del Bargello in Florence present a survey of Donatello, one of the greatest of all Italian Renaissance masters, I talked to Arturo Galanzino, the Strozzi's Director General, and Paola D'Agostino, Director of the Bargello Museum, about the show. The Biennale of Sydney in Australia has just opened, with the theme of Rivas, meaning stream, in Latin. I talked to José Rocca, the Biennale's Artistic Director, and Alessandro Pellizzon, co-founder of the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature, about the Biennale his concept, bringing rivers and other aqueous beings, as Rocker and his curatorial colleagues call them, into dialogue with artists, architects, designers, scientists and communities. What does it mean if you grant rivers and other natural forms rights? And this episode's Work of the Week also explores nature, ecology and the relationship between humans and natural phenomena. I talked to the curator Barbara Rodriguez-Munoz about the photosynthetics, an installation by Eduardo Navarro in Rooted Beings, the latest exhibition at London's Welcome Collection. Before all that, a reminder that to keep up with all the art newspaper's latest stories, you can download our app for iOS and Android, which you'll find at the App Store or Google Play. Do subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, A Brush With, which returns next Wednesday, the 23rd of March. And give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to find us. Now, Donatello, the Renaissance, is a huge new exhibition across two venues in Florence, the Palazzo Strozzi and the Bargello Museum. Featuring 130 works by Donatello, his peers and followers, the show is the first survey in nearly 40 years and the most comprehensive exhibition of Donatello ever presented. It presents the range of Donatello's achievements, from his early sculptures made when he was in his 20s in the early 1400s, to the works made just before his death aged around 80 in 1466. It features his greatest sculptures, the marble St George of 1415-17, to the Massigno Stone Lion, the Marzocco of 1420, and the Bronze David of 1435-40, to together with numerous other sculptures made for Florentine patrons, but also examples from far beyond his native city, including from one of his magnum opuses, the Basilica St Anthony in Padua. It reflects on Donatello's links to major artists in his lifetime, including Brunelleschi and Masaccio, and to his influence on subsequent generations, including Michelangelo, Raphael and Artemisia Gentileschi. I spoke to Arturo Galanzino, the Strozzi's Director General, and Paola D'Agostino, Director of the Bargello Museum, about the exhibition. Arturo, there are certain challenges about putting together an exhibition of Donatello's work. Obviously, on the one hand, it's good that most of his works are in Italy, right? They're not spread very widely across the world, but at the same time, lots of them are in situ. So tell me about the kind of logistical problems of putting on a Donatello retrospective. You know, for an institution like Palazzo Strozzi, which doesn't have a collection, the first requirement is to be with great partners. So first of all, we found the best partner, which is the Bargello Museum, and uh, its director, Paolo D'Agostino. Uh, together, we, uh, we, we created two major projects, two years ago, Verrocchio and now Donatello. So for us, this is a really long-term 
a relationship uh, working on two, I think, groundbreaking exhibitions. First of all, this was uh, the, the first starting point. Then, uh, the Vargello and Strozzi together, we found other important partners in Italy, of course, but especially outside Italy, because co-organizer with us are the State Museum of Berlin and the Victorian Albert Museum of London. So the two major collections of Donatello works outside Italy. So we created all together this very beautiful, important core of Donatello works, and then we found other very important, very, very important additions, especially, as you said, from Italy. I'm talking about uh, loans that never moved uh, from their original sites. For instance, the door of the San Lorenzo Cathedral, some part of the baptistry of Siena. So we have uh, really in this show some things that you could never see uh, elsewhere if not in the original site. So this is already a very important thing. And furthermore, some of these works were restored on occasion of the exhibition. So another great sign that this exhibition will leave is that we are giving back some restoration. Then many others are the loans, also from Florence, uh, from uh, major sites such as Santa Maria Novella or Santa Croce. You know, the list is very long. I don't want to, to forget any <laughs> Because there are really, we are talking about 60 lenders, about 130 works spread between Strozzi and the Bargello. So it's really a big endeavor, a great, a great achievement. And yes, going back uh, to your question, all this work was very complicated, logistically, practically, economically, you know. It was not easy. Uh, <laughs> but now we are also very relieved and proud because the, the result is, is really fantastic, is uh, incredible. And we look forward to receiving the echoes of the, you know, the ideas of the public, of both the scholar and the normal visitors, because this exhibition is for everybody, not only for the art historians. Paola, of course, the Bargello is the preeminent collection of Donatello works. It's famous for its Donatello room. So tell us, how can you make that give the public even more, if you like? How, how do you enhance that when you already have such an extraordinary collection of works? Well, we do. And we are, as been said recently, Donatello home, in the sense that there are other museums which holds more pieces by Donatello, but the Bargello holds the wide-ranging collection in terms of production uses and different materials. And Donatello and its fame at the end of the 19th century really shaped the identity of the museum. In fact, in the late 19th century, the so-called Donatello room became and still is an iconic place, which has not been changed for over a century. So on the occasion of the show, we decided, because of the importance of the partnership, to lend a number of works of such importance that had never happened before. And the, probably the most relevant loan is the marble statue of David, a youthful work by Donatello, which has never left the Bargello since 1873. So it's a very <laughs> important moment. And it, this statue will go to Palazzo Strozzi first and then to Berlin and London in this real collaboration among institutions 
we all decided to share the core of our collection so that the visitors in each country could appreciate the show in similar and yet different ways and really make the Bargello works from the permanent collection known to European visitors as well as worldwide. We are being very daring. And for the first time, although it's a temporary exhibition, we are changing the Donatello room to make space to juxtaposition built by the curator of the show, Francesco Cagliotti, around major works of the Bargello collection, which are so identitarian and iconic to the museum that cannot be moved. And they are the Marzocco, the St. George with its amazing early relief, which really, I still find it breathtaking. It's one of those things that really makes me stay there for hours. And of course, the Bronze David, which is better known, but has always been less appreciated than known in the right perspective. So together with the curator of the show and with Arturo, we are trying something that has not been tried thus far. And at Bargello, we will welcome a very important statue by Desiderio da Settignano, David, from the National Gallery of Washington, which was not lent to the Bargello in 1887, when he was in, still in Florence and in the Martelli household. Now it's being lent over a hundred years later, this is called museum diplomacy. So what the Florentine could not achieve, foreigners managed. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I wanted to talk about the breadth of his language, because, of course, he was a master in so many different materials, and that's what sets him apart in so many different ways. Paola, do you want to tell us about that sort of breadth of expertise and this extraordinary virtuosic power that he had in so many different materials? Yeah, I still think that Donatello is the most surprising artist of his time and in certain respect of all times because he had a kind of like complete freedom and will to experiment and to mix different techniques. He not only managed bronze casting and marble carving as well as clay modeling, but he also became very versatile in plaster and in combining materials. One of the most important works that will be on show here in Florence at Strozzi is the Pio Madonna from the Louvre, which is a combination of colored terracotta, clay and glass to show off the importance of Donatello, which kind of like embodied the best tradition of craftsmen in Florence and combined with the high refined milieu, which he was used to live in, especially since he met with the Medici and recreate in a way a new uh, modern conception of antiquity. He was also someone who challenged the convention of different media and he expanded his knowledge in the rest of Italy. And this is something that the show will really be able to show in the highest and in the most wide ranging ways. I think that in a way, people will understand more the modernity of Donatello nowadays that they could 
over a hundred years ago when there was still very strong the hierarchy of the arts. So somehow marble and bronze ranked first and all the other techniques were sort of like of a second class. Whilst this was not the case and it was not how Donatello conceived his art. That's really interesting. Arturo, can you say something about how you can introduce that element of surprise in Donatello's work to an audience that's used to seeing the works of the people who followed him and built on his ideas. So how can you give that sort of shock, that rupture that Donatello created? Yeah, this is the first time that the public have the opportunity to visit a complete show of Donatello. Not only because it's the first complete survey ever realized on the artist, but also because we had just two (laughs) previous exhibitions. One in the Bargello, 1886, so I think nobody is still alive. And then the second one in 100 years later in the 80s, uh, but it was a smaller exhibition in the Forte del Belvedere, a completely different environment. Uh, let's say that these two exhibitions were in a prehistory of the history of the exhibitions. So, so we paid a lot of, of attention to make this exhibition at the same time philological and spectacular. Uh, you will see Donatello display in the best way because in both cases, in Bargello and Palazzo Strozzi, are in two perfect buildings for its, its works. And um, I think the, the people will be surprised to see all this Donatello together. As Paolo was saying, the evolution of his language is, is incredible. You just cannot believe that it's the same author starting with a Gothic language uh, until to this late... Uh, uh, output where is almost expressionist. People will be able to understand what does it mean, the expressive use of perspective that was a signature of Donatello. This use of the perspective, in, in a way, invented the cinema, uh, you know, five centuries before. It's incredible to see also the, all these details, the power of this invention. It, it's really extraordinary. Now we are in Estonia, really, I'm mind blown. You can probably feel my enthusiasm in my voice. It's really, I think, the same for Paolo, who is installing at the Bargello at the same time. So it's really incredible to see all these things together because, of course, there are a lot of Donatello spread around in Tuscany. And by the way, we are also organizing an itinerary called the Donatello in Toscana, Donatello in Tuscany, which inviting people to go around and discover a lot of treasure by, by the author. There are many, many beautiful places to discover. Yes, but to see all together, concentrated in some rooms like that is really Unbelievable, uh, really unbelievable. People will feel the power of this artist who really changed art history forever. Mm. Indeed. Um, I, I'm really interested, Paolo, in the way that you've chosen to show works by his followers, his contemporaries, by other artists in order to amplify his own achievement. Can you say something about how you've done that? So what happens at the Bargello is that ideally it's, again, a show that you can start in both venues because we have the Salone di Donatello with the youthful works and we have the importance of Donatello for the 16th century. Whilst Strozzi, as Arturo will say, has a more of a chronological follow in terms of the visit, it would be really impossible to fully represent the importance of Donatello for you know, artists of the 16th century and 17th century. But what I think it has been achieved in both venues of the show is really to underline how Donatello is the father 
of 15th and 16th century art and how somehow he created some prototypes that were repeated over and over along the centuries. So at the Bargello, for instance, there are two rooms devoted, the first to the importance of Donatello for artists that probably the general public would not even relate directly to him, someone like Sansovino, for instance. And the last room of the exhibition, it's all built around the so-called Dudley Madonna, which is a small relief that comes from the Victorian Albert Museum that probably, as you know, some scholars think is not by Donatello. Others have been uh, reaffirming Donatello authorship, like the curator of the show. And you have this kind of like breathtaking succession of amazing painting and sculpture and juxtaposed from Donatello Michelangelo, Donatello and Leonardo, Donatello and Sansovino, Donatello up to Artemisia Gentileschi, just to show how he was really the root through which all of what we think, even in terms of mannerism and the grand art was perceived. And in the collection of the Bargello itself, it will be the first time that some works are exhibited and can be compared with the permanent collection of the museum. So somehow we hope that visitors, after being at Strozzi at the Bargello, then spend time and make themselves art historians and go and find Donatello traces in the work of artists of the caliber of Cellini, Giambologna, others. Yes, we have uh, many other artists uh, with Donatello. Of course, Donatello is is the leader of this show. Also, in terms of numbers, we are about, uh, I think, 60 Donatello or more in the exhibition. I don't remember the precise number, but we are uh, about the half of the show uh, of works with Donatello, which is not obvious. We have also pupil for sure, but very, very little compared to what we could have done because... Uh, uh, really, we are opening a Pandora's box about it. But we, we especially have uh, companions and, I would say, brothers for Donatello, especially if you think about Brunelleschi, uh, Masaccio, Bellini, Mantegna. You know, they are not minor artists for sure. They are very, very important master, uh, among the most important masters of all the time. And they were with Donatello. Uh, sometimes they were following him, sometimes they were with him, like in the case of Donatello Bruelleschi, the, the two were really, they did a, a part of their life together. They were really close friends. And then, of course, in Padua, there is this incredible revolution that Donatello brought. For the first time ever, we have loans from the, the Padua Altare del Santo. It's incredible. We have the Miracolo della Mula, the, the Crucifix and uh, Eceomo. These three works, but also the other sculpture of the Altare del Santo, changed the idea of art in the north of Italy, totally. Not only in the Rotorifero, also in the Adriatic coast. So there we can find many others' names, maybe less well-known, such as Marco Zoppo, Giorgio Schiavone, and many others. But, uh, of course, we tried to limit this part of the show because this was really unlimited, <laughs> in a way. And then we also have interesting comparison. For instance, we closed the exhibition with... Uh, the beautiful head of the horse for the monument uh, for the king of Naples is a giant, is really huge, it's a monster, it's not a horse. But uh, on the side we have the, the Hellenistic bronze from the Magic's collection that Donatello was inspired from. So we also have this kind of 
comparison, anti-chronological in a way, but very important because Donatello was inspired by a Greek original. And as you know, Donatello was one of the first artists to rediscover classic art. Obviously, one of the advantages for Donatello, aside from his genius, was that he lived a long time and therefore was able to accomplish so much, unlike Nanni di Banco. But he, he was relentless in that time. He never rested in his laurels. He was always, even right at the very end, he was pushing himself to new territory, wasn't he, Paola? Yes, I think what is surprising is how much energy and physical effort he put towards the end of his life and how much he wanted to really experiment. And some of his creations are so incredible that up to this day, they're still contended between him as a master and some of his followers. You know, if you think of works that are still between him and Derrida Settignano or even Bertoldo. And what I think it is important is in this show, to see how much he never not only repeated himself, but was also challenging himself towards the end of his life, not only in monumental sculpture, but I think especially in the reliefs. And we managed together to assemble the full span of Donatello life and career from the early beginning in marble to the youthful bronzes to the very late bronzes and this kind of like unfinished and rough treatment that would probably sound so unlike the perfection of the Renaissance, but actually you find in Donatello late works, especially the one that he does when he comes back to Florence. And I think this is important to bear in mind even for contemporary artists, because we think of them as experimenting new things. But in this respect, I'm pretty confident that the public will be surprised by Donatello modernity and his ambition in terms of challenging himself, the material, and the canon of arts. Arturo, tell us about reliefs, because the Chacciato technique is extraordinary and it's one of the things he's most famous for. Can you explain to our listeners what was so revolutionary about that? Well, we see that Donatello was able to create a universe and a lot of space in a flat surface without really carving very little. And it's incredible to see, uh, really, in bronze, but also in marble. And we have many examples in the show, this, this uh, idea of the space, which is uh, unbelievable. And it's also related to the, the, what I, I said before, the idea of Donatello reinventing in an expressive way the mathematical perspective. So this was really a revolution, because uh, it was not just about a point of view and creating the box around, but it, it was creating movement and uh, also suggesting something else, something related to the history is telling us. For instance, the, the bas-relief from Siena, no? with the beheading of St. John the Baptist. And uh, this is a, <laughs> the story is very dramatic if you, if you see the, the human figure sculpted in, in bronze. But if you check the space, you feel the drama uh, also without the human figures in the, in the sculpture. So this is already something incredible. I wanted to talk lastly about his place within the canon of the Renaissance and, and that period, because one of the things that you've hinted at here, and it's very clear in the catalogue, is that in many ways he's regarded 
as the greatest of Renaissance artists. But obviously, this idea of a sort of charts of the top hits of the Renaissance is in some ways sort of ridiculous. But at the same time, obviously, it's clear that Michelangelo and Leonardo have achieved a greater fame in the 21st century. So tell us why the 21st century should look more at Donatello. Why does he deserve to be regarded alongside them? It's a very good question, especially because in the 19th century, it was Donatello who was the one more sought after for all the things we now look at, Leonardo and Michelangelo. And I think there were two factors. The wrong idea that paintings is easier than sculpture. Leonardo was mainly a painter, but Michelangelo was a great painter as well as an amazing sculptor. So somehow it's perceived as something easier to relate to and together with Raphael. But it's also a question of knowing less and less the art of Donatello as we moved into the 20th century. What happened in the 19th century is that Donatello fame was mostly achieved either by works on small scale that could be easily be collected or imitated. Otherwise, it was mainly by plaster casts that were collected in all the major museums collection. And the pilgrimage to see Donatello original was not as much as frequent as it is in Michelangelo and Leonardo's cases. And also, a lot of people learned to appreciate Donatello on small scale from what they could see. So I think what people will be surprised, especially by the venue in Florence, is that they can finally see how Donatello is of paramount importance, not only for painting, sculpture, but also for the architecture of figures in the space, which is something that gets be repeated by Michelangelo and by other artists in the 16th century, even on monumental scale. So they learn to understand the figure in the space in terms of narrative, both by reliefs, but mainly by sculptures and by how much Donatello was there in, in his conception. Arturo reference first to the giant head of a horse, which was supposed to be placed in the center of the triumphal arch in Naples. And it was something that no one ever thought before or after. You know, you have to wait the 17th century and Bernini to have such a daring conception of an equestrian monument. And I think that's what I hope people will really appreciate in this fast walk, one masterpiece after the other in both venues and then exploring Donatello in Florence and in the other places of Tuscany. Yes, what uh, can uh, 20th century artists learn from Donatello? A lot, I would say, a lot. And also the non-artists like Cass can learn a lot. The, the, the generosity and the incredible energy of this man is quite evident uh, looking at uh, his uh, life and his work. He probably never stopped working and he also never stopped experimenting with all these materials and uh, being the best. Also, when he was not the best. For instance, if you have the Saludo Vico, the beautiful statue originally for San Michele, now it's Santa Croce. It's incredible. It's huge. It's a giant of gilded bronze. It's very spectacular with all these, uh, these clothes moving. It's very, it's very impressive. But actually, 
if you go behind, you see how Donatello assembled, you know, many pieces to create this scenography, very scenographic effect. At the end of the day, what's happened? That he was able to use one of his weakness as, as a strength. As Paolo said, from the small format to the giant format, this is already a lot. And I think artists today can learn from these multitasking artists because, uh, you know, it's very difficult today to be able to conceive anybody able to use all the materials in this way with this maestria is, uh, wow, really incredible, yeah. Arturo and Paola, thank you so much for telling us about Donatello. Thank you. Grazie. Thank you. Donatello, the Renaissance, is at the Palazzo Strozzi and the Museo del Bargello in Florence from tomorrow, 19th of March, until the 31st of July. It's at the Gemelda Gallery in Berlin from the 2nd of September to the 8th of January next year, and the Victoria and Albert Museum in London will stage its variation of the exhibition in 2023. Coming up, we hear about the rights of rivers at the Biennale of Sydney and Eduardo Navarro's installation at the Wellcome Collection in London. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. In the latest coverage of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Sotheby's Christie's and Bonhams have revealed to the art newspaper that they're cancelling their upcoming London auctions of Russian art due to the war. The French government is launching a 1 million euro support fund for refugee Ukrainian artists and arts professionals forced to leave the country following the Russian invasion. The new scheme will also be open to dissident Russian artists, says the French Ministry of Culture. One of the most important international loans for the National Gallery in London's long-awaited Raphael exhibition has been cancelled. The Holy Family which belongs to Russia's State Hermitage Museum, is grounded in St. Petersburg. And Russia shut down Instagram as well as Facebook after the parent company Meta relaxed a policy preventing hate speech in relation to Russia's war against Ukraine. As one of the most popular apps for creatives, the loss of Instagram will leave thousands further isolated from the international art world. Two front desk workers at the Museum of Modern Art, or MoMA, in New York were stabbed on the 12th of March. As Gabriella Angeletti writes, the suspect, a 60-year-old man named Gary Cabana, entered through the museum's cinema entrance on West 53rd Street and jumped over the counter before he attacked two employees, both aged 24. One worker was stabbed in the collarbone behind the neck and another in the lower back and neck. Both were taken to hospital and are expected to recover. Cabana was arrested on the 15th of March in Philadelphia after a four-day police manhunt. A controversial portrait by the British 18th century painter Joshua Reynolds depicting the Pacific islander Omai has had a temporary export ban placed on it by the UK government. Valued at £50 million, it's the joint most expensive work along with an early Picasso painting to be subject to export deferral since controls were introduced in the 1950s. As Martin Bailey reports, a UK buyer now has until the 10th of July to make a commitment to try to raise the money if Omai, which was made in 1776, is to be stopped from going abroad. The fundraising period could then be extended until March 2023. The saga of Omai has been running since the early 2000s when Tate attempted to acquire it following another export ban but its anonymous owner refused to sell it to the gallery. It's unlikely that Tate or any other cash-strapped UK public institution would be able to raise the sum to acquire it now. You can read all these stories and much more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. 
The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Experience 20th, 21st century art sales as Christie's presents its biannual modern British and Irish art auctions. Led by important paintings by Bridget Riley, Sir Peter Blake, Ben Nicholson and David Bomberg, the modern British and Irish art evening sale on the 22nd of March presents works by leading 20th century British and Irish artists including Dame Barbara Hepworth, William Turnbull, Henry Moore and Lynn Chadwick. The modern British and Irish art day sale on the 23rd of March includes a lineup of important paintings Painters including Ellis Lowry, Vanessa Bell, David Hockney, Sir Peter Blake, works from Scottish colourists and sculptures by Elizabeth Frink, Lynn Chadwick and Anthony Caro. Discover remarkable works as these auctions showcase the breadth and diversity of British and Irish art in the 20th and 21st centuries. Find out more on Christie's.com. That's the sound of the Great Animal Orchestra, an audio-visual experience of animal sounds recorded in natural habitats around the world by the American soundscapist and ecologist Bernie Krause. Krause worked in collaboration with the London-based collective United Visual Artists to create a spectacular in Sydney Harbour in Australia last week, where the Great Animal Orchestra was projected onto Sydney Opera House. It was part of the Biennale of Sydney, whose title is Rivas, meaning stream in Latin. It's organised by a so-called curatorial led by Jose Roca and themed around rivers, particularly linked to indigenous philosophies of country, including forms of water and other natural phenomena, and how they relate to humans. The Biennale opened in the same week that floods following days of rain engulfed various parts of Australia. I spoke to Roca and to Alessandro Pellizzon, co-founder of the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature and a lecturer at Southern Cross University in Australia, which has a campus in Lismore, New South Wales, that was badly affected by the floods. Jose, I'm I'm really conscious that we're talking at a moment when Australia's just experienced this trauma of more floods, more environmental catastrophe. It must have felt very poignant last week when you were opening the Biennale to be surrounded by this environmental trauma at the same time. Yes, it was in the back of our, our minds all the time while we were opening the Biennale, given that the title Rivers comes from the Latin root for a brook or a stream, but it's also the origin of the word rivalry. So this idea of water and conflict uh, is part of our project, or at least the beginning of our project. And to have all these floods happening was quite strong as a context, yes. Can you tell me something about why you wanted to make water the subject of the Biennale? Because as you say, it's a complex theme, but it's obviously deeply connected to indigenous peoples in Australia. Yes, when I was approached by the Biennale of Sydney in uh, 2019 to submit a proposal, I had been working for 10 years by then on a residency on the Magdalena River in Colombia. So uh, we were inviting artists from all over the world to come there to that residency place, be in relation to the river and then produce a series of works that we would present in Bogota, where we have this small independent space called Flora. So I was very much linked to the river from the standpoint of, of art making. So I, I had also done an exhibition in New York at the Bart Graduate Center called Water Weavers. And it was about the rivers and weaving in Colombia and weaving because it was a way to incorporate 
material culture from many communities that live alongside the river. So I decided to make this exhibition, Water Weavers, and the experience that I had had uh, during the residency in, in Flora as the starting points. And that's what I proposed to the Biennale of Sydney, a project about rivers and other waterways and the ecologies they sustain. But then over the process of working with the four local curators here in Sydney, Anna Davis from the MCA, Pascal Dantosberry from the Art Gallery, Hannah Donnelly from Information and Cultural Exchange in Parramatta, and Talia Lins from Artspace, it became apparent that this was just the starting point, but then many other uh, themes and ideas started to appear in the course of our research process. And then the Binale ended up being about all those other themes rather than only about water or rivers. Alessandro, can you tell us more about the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature of which you're a part? Because I think some people won't understand that there is a long-lasting process, actually, of legal understandings in relation to the rights of nature. But can you, can you explain more about it? Certainly. We can go back 50 years now, in 72, when Professor Christopher Stone of the University of Southern California and one of his uh, property law lectures with what was then, and still is to many lawyers, a very provocative question. He asked, should trees have standing? Or in other words, the right to sue and be sued in a court of action. And the reason was prompted by the proposed development of um, a ski resort in the Southern Sierra Mountains by the Walt Disney Company, a resort that the Sierra Club, the long-term defenders of the area, tried to stop. But the Supreme Court argued that since the Sierra Club wasn't directly damaged by development, the Sierra Club didn't have any standing. And Professor Stone, and the only dissenting justice agreed, said, well, maybe the Sierra Club is not damaged, but something is being damaged, the old growth forest that is going to be destroyed. And so if standing is the only thing that we have to protect that old growth forest, maybe the old growth forest ought to have standing in and of itself. Fast forward 30 years, and uh, Thomas Berry and Cormac Cullinan started arguing, particularly Cormac Cullinan, for an earth jurisprudence, a jurisprudence that acknowledges the fact that humans are just part of a very complex system of beings and phenomena, the well-being of which, of each member of the system, is dependent from and connected to the well-being of the system as a whole. So unless we protect the system as a whole, eventually all members of the system will suffer and collapse. And so this ecosystemic or ecological or ecocentric approach to law and governance started to permeate the legal minds more than what Stone had initially proposed. And these were the first arguments brought forth explicitly in Western legal thought that something other than human and the human constructs, i.e. associations, corporations and states, could be seen as a subject of law, not just as an object of law, as a subject of, of rights and with rights. And this was taken up first tentatively by a number of local ordinances in the U.S., Tamaqua Borough being the first in 2006, but then much more importantly in 2008 by the new and the novel Ecuadorian Constitution, which in three of its sections and provisions describes nature or Pachamama as a subject of rights. Pachamama being the Andean concept, which is often translated with Mother Earth, but it's much more than that. It's, it's a bigger concept that, that engages not just the Mother and the Earth, but it's far more than that. 
So in 2008, Ecuador opened the floodgate. Ever since, there have been more than 620 initiatives worldwide in just over 12, 14 years that recognize nature, all components of nature, as legal subjects. This is the fastest growing legal movement on the planet. No other legal movement has seen such a, a radical growth in such a short span of time. And this is across something akin to 45 to 50 jurisdictions, so 50 different nations have recognized that either constitutionally or at a statute level or via judicial decisions like in Colombia, they have recognized various parts of nature as legal subjects. In 2010, a group of scholars, activists, politicians, philanthropists gathered in Quito, in Ecuador, to launch the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature, an alliance of different organizations focused on supporting the emergence of this movement. Not just in a practical term, because there are many questions that are still unanswered, because who speaks for nature? What kind of interests are to be represented? And so on and so forth. But that notwithstanding, there is the possibility of A, creating the legislative framework that recognises nature not just as an object of someone else's rights, but also B, to have a platform where these ideas can be discussed and conceived of. Right. And Jose, obviously this is inherently bound up with questions of Indigenous rights, because fundamentally that's an understanding in, in Indigenous knowledge, that symbiosis of nature and humans, the equal rights, if you like, of non-human and human entities. And you've built that into the Biennale concept, right? Yes. So as I was saying, the initial theme of rivers and the ecologies they sustain branched out into many other themes like rights of nature, as Alessandro was saying, voices of nature, interspecies collaboration, assembled ecologies, ancestral knowledges, and many more. So when you talk about the environment and water, you can never leave out the thinking of indigenous peoples, which have learned to live in harmony with the places they live. For example, we have in the Biennale an elder from the Amazon jungle that shows the cycle of the chagra or farm in the Amazon, and it shows how, contrary to popular perception, the Amazon is not fertile. It has to be made fertile. And what they do is to clear a patch of land, burn down the trees, the cinders, fertilize the earth. They plant certain crops in certain order. And then around a year and a half afterwards, when the soil is depleted, they will move elsewhere, clear another patch and let the jungle take over and replenish itself. So it is clear that indigenous communities have learned to live in harmony with the environment because it's a question of survival. So we thought that we should weave indigenous thinking in our process. And uh, that's what we've done. This Biennale doesn't have only artists. We are using the word participants because many of the projects that we are including are not done by artists. They are architects, designers, activists, and so on, indigenous people, but also because not all of them are even people. We have invited uh, around 10 rivers and other waterways as participants in the Vinale, and they are represented in these videos where they speak directly to the viewer as unmediated as possibly, and they are represented by custodians of other people that are intricately interwoven with the fate of these bodies of water. 
And Alessandro, obviously that sort of rivers having advocates, it's crucial that while the intentions are always good, that there isn't a colonial approach to that process, right? So I imagine, therefore, at the heart of your movement are Indigenous voices and Indigenous decision makers, for instance. Well, absolutely. So the Ecuadorian constitution was the creation of a dialogue between the Pachacutic movement, the native movement of Ecuador, like which combined a host of indigenous groups and the constitutional convention that issued the constitution. But it's very important never to speak on behalf of indigenous people, either as a group or as a collective, because obviously the agency of each individual community and individual group forms part of the normative, cultural and ontological diversity that we need to preserve. When we speak of Indigenous people, we have to remember that we speak of the greatest number of legal systems in the world, that the greatest diversity of languages, legal systems and worldviews exist within the plurality of views of Indigenous peoples. And so when we speak of advocacy for the river, also we need to somewhat ask whether the communities, the indigenous communities that we refer to, are just the human indigenous communities or whether we transcend the boundaries of human and non-human. Because often to speak of the sense of symbiosis with nature suggests that there's still a distinction between nature and culture, that divide, that discolor rights. Whereas to many indigenous scholars I speak to, such a divide doesn't exist. The river for the people of the northern basin of the Amazon, for example, is not just a body of water that flows and that provides wealth and nourishment. It's actually the blood of an ancestor. It's the channel through which the ancestors travel. To many, and we can actually harness back and go back in time and look at the imagery of the rivers in Greek and Roman mythology, that to the Greek, the Greeks or the Romans, the Tiber, for example, the river of Rome, they're the greatest daimones, the, the greatest spirits that the physical world is a mirror of. So this idea of rivers, not just as physical entities that we advocate for, but as actual entities with independent agency, is a crucially challenging concept for those who still think in terms of nature as a collection of material resources in a deterministic and material deterministic sense. And so if we're looking at a diversity of approaches here, we can look no further than the Wanganui Iwi and the Wanganui River, whereby the two guardians of the river appointed by the Te Awatupua Act, one is appointed by the Crown, but the other is appointed by the Iwi. And as the appointee of the Iwi, that person is not someone who advocates for the river, but he is the person who is tasked with listening to the river. It is the river that speaks, not the person who speaks for the river. And so the person just becomes the mouthpiece of the river. It's the person who is, has spent the most time with that particular daimon, if we want to use the Greek term, so that they are capable of listening to the voice of that daimon. And Jose, obviously, it's the Biennale, so there's a, there's a lot of artists, a lot of projects, a lot of beyond artists as well. But can you give us a flavour of a, just a couple of projects that are part of the Biennale where these ideas are explored? Yeah, as I said, Don Abel Rodriguez, this elder from the Nonuya and Winani communities in the Colombian Kawinari River that makes this extremely detailed drawings of the river. And it's interesting because when we Westerners look at the jungle, it is a concept. We only see green, even if we are very attuned to nature and we are conservationists, we still don't understand 
when an indigenous person looks at the jungle, is as if we opened the door of a fridge. They know exactly what to do with everything that they see there, and uh, we don't. So we have a wall, this is at the Museum of Contemporary Art, an entire wall that we call the Wall of Diversity, with, for example, 10 or 15 different types of pineapples. For us, pineapple is one thing. For them, there are many. Yucas, which is like a root that they grow, it's a staple of their, their diet. There are more than 15 yucas. Yams, there are 10 yams. Tobacco, bananas, you know, and so on and so forth. Biodiversity is important because it is what guarantees a survival in the long term. But for us, a species is only one or two or three varieties because the market has forced us to consume monocultures uh, that have been optimized for maximum yield and low cost. So this wall of the uh, biodiversity, in a way, gives visibility for this catchphrase, biodiversity, that we all brandish here and there, but few of us, certainly not me, fully understand you know, the meaning of. That's really interesting. And obviously, biennales are enormously consuming events. They are terrible for the environment. You've got artists flying in from overseas, from multiple international venues. You've got works being shipped at great cost across the world and, and huge resource loss. So tell us how you've counteracted that, because you've said that you wanted this to be a sustainable or even better than sustainable biennale. Yes, so I said that as a provocation, of course, because there is an oxymoron when you talk about a sustainable biennial, because a biennial is about bringing the global, the international, to the local for a very small and concentrated period of time, which involves production, shipping, etc., as you mentioned. But I tried to lower that carbon footprint through several measures. One... I moved here for the entire duration of the process, so I didn't have to travel back and forth from Colombia, where I usually live. So I became as local as possible. I told my team that we would not travel, that we would consider our, you know, many years of traveling internationally as the trips for this Biennale. So we were continuing existing conversations as opposed to doing those long trips of research that are so time and energy consuming in, in every sense of the word. And then when it comes to the exhibition itself, we try to produce works as much as we could in Sydney or in Australia. We try to minimize shipping uh, by doing that. We encourage the use of uh, non-polluting materials and processes. We launched with uh, Cicada Innovations, which is a, a startup for new initiatives and uh, the British Council, we launched a new and sustainable materials challenge in order to identify, you know, people that were doing other types of materials that, uh, that we could use in the installation process instead of drywall or plywood and those staple materials in, in museum practice that more often than not get just thrown into the landfill. So we were successful uh, partially in, in some things and we are able to calculate our lower footprint, for example, by not traveling as much and by producing locally. But it, of course, it's nowhere near zero. 
the only way to make it completely carbon neutral would be to buy a carbon credits, but I think that's not the point. The point is to try to be a little more aware of the impact that we have in uh, the environment. And uh, now you can also take it more philosophically and think that the Biennale is a sort of temporary museum for a community that is mostly local, some of which might have had to travel abroad to see the art that we are bringing here. So if you factor in the less travel, let's say, philosophically, that happens because this, the, all these you know, people can actually experience the art that is brought for them, then you can also uh, think of it that way. And of course, the social importance of art and culture that is very difficult to measure, but of course, it's a sort of trade-off for the carbon footprint that we are having. And Alessandro, obviously this kind of thing that a Biennale is highlighting the kind of work that you are doing in terms of asserting the rights of natural phenomena. But I wonder, you said it's a growing movement, but to what extent is it affecting geopolitics? To what extent is it having an impact? And what does it need to do to have a greater impact? Is it about awareness, fundamentally? Are governments listening? And what more can be done in that sense? So there are many, many questions there to sort of unpack. The first one is about governments and the listening. It seems to me that there is a disconnect between democracy and governance at the moment in that the party system worldwide and the way in which the party systems operate have created a divide between the voice of the electorate and the response of governments worldwide to different degrees and different extents. But clearly there's a very strong disconnect between the idea of democracy, the, the, the power of the, the demos, the people as a whole, and the way in which representative democracy operates today. So governments are clearly not listening, but they're not listening to many things. This is just one of many we can see that there's a very strong sense of disconnect between what some maybe deranged individuals do and what the people would like them to do. We see that worldwide everywhere, particularly now. So the issue of government listening is a broader issue than whether they're listening to this issue or not. But it's also not that important because the, the change, as you're rightly pointing out, is operating at a visceral level, at a fundamental level. The way in which we view the world around us is changing. And sometimes it's changing because nature is forcing that upon us. I live in the midst of the flood-ravaged area. My campus is in Lismore and I live in Ewinsdale. So I've seen the destruction. I'm really grateful that my place has been spared. But all around me, friends, families, acquaintances have lost everything. And, and so the hubris that we have in thinking ourselves greater than everything around us, is now being reflected back to us. And it's reminding us of the humility with which we should uh, approach the cosmos. And so the first thing that the idea of nature as an agent, as a legal agent does, is to make us acknowledge everything around us, not just as a collection of resources, but as agentic things and beings all around us. And so... Jose actually mentioned very aptly the, the way in which indigenous Amazonians view the forest. And I lived in the Amazon for a while. We see the jungle or the forest as a whole. All the indigenous people I've been mentored by, they see it as relationship with that particular plant and the relationship that that plant has with that other plant. So there is no collective forest. It's a network and nexus of different relations. 
And we all have them, it's just that we don't pay attention to them. So the idea of rights of nature is, is mostly bringing up the attention that we live in an enmeshed world where everything has consequences and very direct consequences that we are now feeling with a lot of pain. But also, the idea of right is an obsession of the Western liberal world over the last 200 years. We emphasize individual rights, what we expect rights are, in other words, in a Herfeldian sense, expectations. But Wesley Herfeld in the early 1900s said there are dual correlatives. So when you have rights, there are correlative duties or responsibilities. And so if something has rights, something else or someone else has responsibilities and duties. And so to attribute rights to nature means to, most importantly, to attribute responsibilities to humans. Now, Bolivia, for example, chose to bypass the discourse of rights and go directly to the discourse of responsibilities and saying, what are we responsible for rather than what do we want to expect? What are my rights is what are my duties is the, the fundamental question. And to my mind, the question of what are my duties brings up the dichotomy between sustainability, which is the common word that we are using today, and frugality, which is the most important word that we, I think we should look for. Because sustainability, that means almost nothing. What does it mean to be sustainable? Like, yeah, I use more, but it's made of non-plastic, but I'm still using more. Like this obsession with consuming stuff at all costs. You should have seen, for all those who are listening, the amount of stuff, the tons that have been thrown away because of the floods here. It's mind-blowing. Like the amount of stuff that goes away will need to be replenished. And some of it is necessary, but... 90% of it isn't. 90% of what is around here isn't necessary. And, and yet we're obsessed with that. So frugality is probably the thing that we need to think more. Like, what can I not do in the world? How can I check my ego and not do something and therefore walk more lightly on the planet? So I think the idea of rights of nature raises all these issues that are far more deeply personal than purely normative or, or legal. But it does so by focusing on the legal discourse around these issues. And Jose, do you see the Biennale of a call to action in that effect, you know, urging that level of responsibility and frugality, but also doing it through, fundamentally through cultural experience, right? Yes, I think that art takes often a sort of a tangential path, good art that is, otherwise it becomes propaganda. And I don't want uh, a Biennale that it consists on messages to the public, admonishing them for this or for that. I think it, it has to be much more mysterious and uh, let's say subtle. So that is what uh, my colleagues and I in the curatorium and I try to do, which is an exhibition that it's an enjoyment of the senses, not only the visual, but smell, and sound and the mix of all that and, and a real bodily experience and also an exhibition that it's alive, particularly at the cutaway, which is one of the venues and, and by far the largest, which is a space where the huge, gigantic sandstone wall can be seen. And it's an exhibition space where it shines, it rains inside and uh, wind comes in, so you can feel the elements, and there are things that are growing, and there are things that are dying and decaying. So yes, I think we would like to raise awareness, but the degree of, of action of, of art 
is really difficult to measure whether it can raise awareness or not. It depends, you know. It would be very difficult to, to say that this exhibition will raise awareness about all these issues. Maybe it will, maybe other people will enjoy it as a purely visual or sensorial experience. Well, Jose and Alessandro, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. The Biennale of Sydney, Rivas, continues until the 13th of June, and Jose and Alessandro will take part in a panel discussion on the 10th of May, titled Reclaiming Rivers' Rights. You can find out more at the Biennale's website, which is biennaleofsydney.art. And finally, it's time for Work of the Week. On the 24th of March, the Welcome Collection in London opens Rooted Beings, an exhibition it calls a meditative reflection on the world of plants and fungi, which correlates strongly with some of the themes of the Biennale of Sydney. It considers what we might learn from plant behaviour and the impacts of colonial expeditions on the exploitation of natural resources and indigenous knowledges. Among the works in the show is Eduardo Navarro's The Photosynthetics, an installation featuring drawings on biodegradable paper envelopes containing the seeds of London plane trees. Barbara Rodriguez-Munoz is one of the curators of Rooted Beings and I spoke to her about Navarro's project. Barbara, to start, tell us a bit about Eduardo, um, his background and his work. Eduardo Navarro is an Argentinian artist. We could understand his work as an emotional technology to develop perhaps empathy with non-human beings. Uh, his work with drawing, with performance and with installation. And I think for me, his work is very much about being more grounded, about being more rooted and hence the connection with this exhibition. And this work that we're talking about, the photosynthetics, it's a multi-part work. It's an installation on the one hand, but it's made up of drawings, but it has a life beyond the exhibition. So, so tell us first about the drawing aspect. So they're charcoal drawings, right? So this is a collaboration with uh, La Casa Encendida in Madrid, who are our partners for the exhibition um, at Welcome Collection. And exactly, it's a series of drawings, quite large, and they're made with charcoal and pastel on biodegradable envelopes that he has made by hand. So they will be installed in a grid shape in the exhibition space, and inside the envelopes contain three seats, in fact, the London plane tree. And of course, for people who haven't been to London or haven't spent much time in London, the plane tree is kind of a symbol of London. It, it's on many of the avenues around town. And obviously, that's a very deliberate choice of Eduardo's. Exactly. And there is also a plane tree in a square close to Welcome Collection, where Eduardo is going to develop his performance. So there are like three aspects to Eduardo's commission. We have these drawings that are kind of hybrid creatures, kind of half plant, half human made in black and green with charcoal and pastel. And they contain these plain tree seeds. So at the end of the exhibition, they will be just deposited in the soil, in the land, and they will decompose and become humus, become soil. Eduardo and I spent the lockdowns talking about this idea of soil and humus and being grounded. And, and we were discussing how the word human comes from humus, comes from soil. So it's not just plants, but we are also creatures from the land. But unfortunately, we have cut ties 
with the land, with the territory. And this, as we know, is having a dramatic consequences for our planet and our health. The idea is that these drones will return to the soil. And, and then on the other hand, we have found a plane tree in a square close to Welcome Collection, where Eduardo is going to develop a performance. Let's come back to the performance in a minute because I'd like to go into the drawings a bit more. Obviously, he's using charcoal, which is a biodegradable technology in its own sense. So that's crucial to it, right? That every aspect of it is a renewable source, in effect. That's the idea. So every aspect of it, um, of the production and the materials used for the drawings, the idea is that they can return to the earth, they can return to the soil, and perhaps a new life can emerge in the shape of a tree. Uh, It could be seen more as a poetic gesture as well. Yeah, and they're quite graphically intense aren't they his style is very particular and it makes me think about for instance the drawings from modernist history is it does he have particular influences that he talks about we haven't talked about those influences for me like the influence we've talked about is mindfulness Hmm. and this idea of drawings that can be meditative and the idea that a drawing kind of make you slow down and and, you know and meditate on on something and in this case is in our relationship with plants uh, and the vegetal world and as you say, these envelopes, they're handmade and they're quite large, aren't they? So the drawings are 50 by 70 centimetres, so that gives people a perspective. But as they've been presented so far in La Casa Encendida, it was in a sort of grid. Is that how you'll be presenting it in the Welcome Collection too? They will be installed in a green system um, hanging from the ceiling at Welcome Collection, like we installed them at La Casa Encendida. And this is made of steel. So yes, it's kind of like quite an industrial material that is hosting something much more organic in terms of the subject matter, but also in terms of the materials. And the idea is that the visitors can walk around the work, right? So you probably will see the drawings at the front first because they will call your attention, but then they're installed in a way that you can go at the back and realize that they are, in fact, envelopes. And you can learn that inside there is the seat from the London plane tree. And in terms of the way that it's been presented in the past, he's produced a text, a collaborative text, Mm -hmm. right, which relates to this work, which, as you say, it relates very directly to mindfulness. There's notes on breathing and using your body in the space. So tell us more about that. I think it's it's, um, significant to tell you about how this text developed. So Michael Marder, who is a philosopher that has done a lot of work uh, around plant thinking, has been very much one of the main inspirations for this exhibition. And Eduardo relates as well to uh, Marder's thinking. So during the lockdowns, we spent a great deal of time uh, meeting online and talking about Michael Marder and plant thinking. At that time, Eduardo was developing a performance for La Casa Encendida, a performance in which you will have a series of dancers, choreographers becoming plant in the gallery space. But then, because of the health crisis, it transpired that we were not allowed to have performances. This was last year. Uh, Things, luckily, are slowly improving. So we started questioning what happens if it's, in fact, the visitors that somehow become the performers. And what happens if the visitors are asked to interact with the exhibition and experience the exhibition as if they were plants? And then together we had this idea of talking to Michael Marder, and uh, proposing to collaborate with Eduardo to write a set of instructions for visitors to experience the exhibition as if they were plants. So this means stretching their limbs, means being attentive to the elements around them, whether they're artworks, the light, (laughs) the cold air of the museum space, (laughs) or other visitors, to change their rhythm, to change their pace. It's an invitation to have a more meditative 
experience of the exhibition. And it was written by both of them and it worked really well at La Casa Encendida. That's great. And, and also, Eduardo has talked about breathing as a form of communication with plants, right? So, you know, obviously, we are reliant upon plants, plants feed from human interaction, and so on. So he's very clear about plant-human communication, right? And also the impossibility of this plant-human communication. I think something we discuss a lot is this idea of how plants perform many of the functions that we perform, but their organs are not defined, like in our case. So we were talking about, could we breathe through our skin, for example? What happens when breathing is not just localized on, on your respiratory system? And these were some of the ideas that were incorporated in this text. And then in terms of his performance, he's doing this performance in London later in the exhibition. What, what does that consist of? Yeah, it's a performance called Index of Shapes, and it will take place around um, a London plane tree close to Welcome Collection. Uh, so he's created these um, skins, a series of different skins that mimic the bark of the tree and in this way breaking this dichotomy no, between humans and plants. And the idea is that a couple of them will be in the exhibition space, but they will be passive, more as a skin hanging from the ceiling. But then for the performance, when they get activated in July, a few choreographers will use them and create this choreography around the the tree, the plane tree. So in essence, Eduardo's work exists in multiple spaces, right? And it seems to me in some ways that's quite radical because this idea of we're so used to artworks, they may be produced for institutions or for public spaces, but then they go into the market. But he is utterly withdrawing the work from that form of consumption, right? So his work ultimately leads to destruction or, or incorporation in the earth. I will, totally... talk about, I will talk about new creation. It's not destruction. Those drawings will go back to the soil and become something new. It's more about continuing the cycle of, of nature rather than destruction. Or maybe through destruction you have a new birth. Well, thank you, Barbara, for telling us about this really fascinating work. You're welcome. Rooted Beings is at the Welcome Collection in London from the 24th of March to the 29th of August. And that's all for this episode. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentel and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to this week's guests, Arturo and Paola, Jose and Alessandro and Barbara. And thank you for joining us. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.